Hi, everybody. Welcome to the call. Great to have you here today. Um, we've got a number of people on board, and we, we have the whole Manager Tools team, and we're really excited to get, to get going on this. Um, I want to share a couple of things with you before we get started with answering your questions. Um, as you know, Mark and I have a, sim a simple, single objective, a real simple one, right, which is to change the state of management around the world. So luckily for us, the podcasts have been really successful in getting our our uh, our message out, but we also know that there are some folks out there who don't have an affinity for podcasts, and so, frankly, we're always looking for ways of getting the message about effective management out, right? We don't consider ourselves podcasters. We just simply think of podcasts as a way to get some of the messages out, and so one of the we have at least one new way that um, most of you probably not have not heard of, Manager Tools and Hewitt Packard, HP, just entered into a strategic relationship to provide daily manager tools content to all HP ePrint capable HP printers. And what that simply means is that folks are now going to be able to, much like they can subscribe, you can subscribe to a podcast on iTunes, you're going to be able to subscribe to a simple one pager uh, of manager tools content that provides, much like our podcast, actual manager tools. Um, actual guidance for your daily reading pleasure. Um, another exciting part for us particularly, because um, I think it just it just suggests not only in terms of the, the fact that people like the content, people find valuable the content that we provide, but also that there's an increasing awareness of how important effective management is in the world. And as part of that recognition, HP is, has included manager tools and manager tools daily manager in the out-of-box experience with new HP printers. There are only 30 applications that are, are there, and Manager Tools is one of them. So folks can, can install their new printer, and they can simply go to the menu and select Manager Tools as something they want to have printed on their printer every morning. So they press a couple buttons, and every morning they walk into their office, and there's new Manager Tools content already printed right there on the printer. So we're really excited about that. Now. Even more exciting for you, because maybe many of you don't have new printers, but as part of that effort, we created the Podcast Navigator. And so one of the things we found out is that we've, as we've, you know, now we have, what, 500 podcasts or something like that, that there, it's more, less and less a daily management show, but it's really a library of effective managerial guidance. And so the question is, how do people find what they need when they need it? And so what we've done is we've developed the Podcast Navigator, which is a mobile web-based application for finding exact podcasts you're looking for. And we think this is a significant step in terms of making the Managed Tools library more accessible. And so we've mentioned it elsewhere a couple times, um, but we haven't really shared it with the broader audience, and so we wanted to make sure that you all do about it. So if you, go, if you use your mobile mobile device and you go to the URL, the Manager Tools website, so www.manager-tools.com forward slash podcast dash navigator. So www.manager-tools.com forward slash podcast dash navigator. Um, you'll get to our mobile podcast navigator site. Um, I'd love for you to check it out and let us know what you think about it, um, suggestions for improvement, Etc. I think you will really like the folks who have checked it out so far have really enjoyed it quite uh, immensely. Um, 
update on many, hopefully everybody on this call is aware of the interview creation tool, which we launched in September. We've already had several thousands of people create interviews with the tool, and the response has been overwhelmingly positive. So I'd encourage, if you haven't checked it out, please do so. It's, you know, it's, it's what you get with your individual license. It's part of that, so please take advantage of that. Um, we've, we're also kicking off, we just recently kicked off the effort to do kind of version two and improvements, so if there are things you'd like to see, you know, certainly send us an email and let us know what you'd like to see. Um, one other thing I want to mention is, is we, many of you who have been around for a long time know that Mark and I um, don't talk as much as we used to about the, our future plans. Um, but we also, you know, frankly, when Mark and I sit down and think about our audience and who our core customers are, who do we want to serve more than anybody else, right? Because you can try to serve everybody and get lost. Um, we think of you. You guys are our are the people we think about when we serving when we serve our customers, and so so that so I think it's reasonable that we share some things with you, give you a little peek behind the curtains. And so, one of the things we're currently actively engaged in is we've kicked off the development effort for the retention tool. And so m many of you longtime listeners will recall we did some podcasts on retention. So we now have a tool that we're going to roll out that I think you'll really really like that will help you think through your organization. That the people in your organization, where they are, what their risk of, of, of losing and losing them, as well as what the impact of that departure would be, and, and generating some incredibly valuable output that will give you some guidance on how to, um, how to handle retention from the perspective of your entire organization. The last thing I want to mark now, you're not gonna, hopefully you're not going to kill me here, because um, many of you have asked. Because you're taking too long. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> many of you asked you questions about about Mark's book and uh, Mark. I think it's. I, I think it's. Mike, it's Mike. Mike, Mike. It's one of the. It's one of the questions that's put to us in the deck. Okay. Then we'll then we'll we'll address it then. We'll address it then. So um, there you go. So that's it. So so Mark, I'll turn over to Mark and we can get to your questions. Hey everybody! Thrilled to have you. Here. These are fun. I didn't expect them to be this much fun, but um, I, uh, when all the questions come in, we, we have a cutoff time, so I have some time to prepare. Wendy creates a PowerPoint deck. I think that you're staring at the first question of now that's from a guy named Stefan. Uh, I believe the, the names are anonymized, so I don't know who they're from. Um, and I'm going to uh, – I'll read the bluff of each one. I know that you have not seen them, and so you're going to want to read the background. Um, but basically what I do is I take her deck, put it in notes view, and then I write my notes underneath it. Don't ask for my notes. Um, you can listen to a recording. Uh, my notes are incomplete, but, um, but uh, they're not show notes. Uh, they're designed to give me talking points to address the question. Otherwise, I'd be writing show notes for all the questions, and we don't have time for that. Okay, so first question, uh, writing effective weekly and monthly reports. Um, Stefan, I'm not sure I completely get your question. Uh, it seems to me you're being driven by a need to inform your boss frequently of how good your team is, um, but I'm not sure that's a good idea. And in fact, with some bosses, I know it's not a good idea. Um, there are some bosses who ask for these things, um, and, and, and generally those bosses who don't ask for them probably don't want them. 
but, but there's a bit of a gray area in there, and I, I do respect the question. Um, I can say if I were your peer, I wouldn't necessarily want a weekly report. Or put it differently, I might say, sure, send it, and then I just wouldn't read it. Um, I'm sure that makes me a bad person, but oh, whatever. Um, I might want a monthly report, but I probably, I often skip it unless your team supported mine closely or vice versa. Um, it probably depend on my relationship with you. My recommendation, frankly, here is to leave your reports to your boss at the quarterly level unless you're getting specific feedback. Now, look, if you're, if you're getting specific uh, uh, feedback, uh, from your boss about more frequently, then of course, great, but I would have wanted a different question in that case. And if that's the case, just send me an email and I'll be happy to answer questions specifically. Um, um, I, I would leave it at quarterly. I, I would not increase this, and, and I love the way you asked the question in connecting your direct's work with your reporting to your boss. The issue here is if it's being driven by your desire to report to your boss, but it requires input from your directs, then, then I really fall down really strongly and I would not increase the frequency of my directs reports to me if I were you. You're going to be quadrupling their work. I, I get your point about, hey, if I, you know, monthly they forget stuff, they, you know, they, they abstract up to a higher level and so you miss stuff. Um, but, but, but I want to be a, a boss that doesn't burden in the paperwork that the company isn't already asking to do. So I would only suggest that you, in this case, make some notation in your weekly one-on-ones with your directs as stuff that you think you ought to be, that you think ought to be mentioned in the monthlies, and maybe put a, a star by them or an M with a square around it saying, that's, that's for the monthly. And then what you end up doing is taking their, their monthlies and then adding a couple more and then going, okay, what do I need to cut out of that to get it to a page or a page and a half or whatever? Uh, and then, and then if they don't mention it in theirs, of course, you add it. Um, I don't, you, you asked about format. I, I don't think there's one best way for format. I do think in a technical environment, I'd be thinking about project status, about wins and losses, um, and, and people slash business impacts and, People impacts would be things like people leaving or updates on top performers. Um, business impacts would include customer industry information that, that the boss would not inherently know. I think that's a basic structure. Um, I don't think more than a page would necessarily be bad on a quarterly basis. I think for most managers, I mean, your, your boss is at least a director, if not higher, more than two pages would be, would be overkill. One is probably sufficient. And if you want me to look at your format, just email it to me and I'll be happy. Yeah, I'd have to know more details about what you do and where you do it, but, but um, if I did, I'd be able to say, yeah, it's too much, or based on the guys I know, this is what I think they think. Good question, though. Um, Okay, next, from a guy named Eric. Can I give negative feedback through a translator? <laughs> you know, I've gotten this question probably, I don't know, 20 or 30 times in my life. Um, and uh, it, it's funny, I actually had one manager say, can I do it? And the translation was into French. Um, and uh, he said, I really think the translator doesn't want to give feedback. Like, well, who's in charge here? You know, you are the translator or you're direct. The answer, though, simply put, is, yeah, you can do it. I think it's a lousy situation, um, but under the circumstances, I think giving feedback, negative feedback through a translator is a reasonable accommodation. Now, there's a little bit of a plus here in that I can't imagine being angry and giving negative feedback through a translator and expecting the translator to to translate that, 
I, I assume, you know, it's uh, those of us who have been in translation situations and political situations and so on, you always look at one another and you listen to the translator. But, of course, you're over the phone, and I, I think, if I recall that correctly, because um, this person's off-site in Japan. Um, and, and so you're not looking at one another. Um, but what I would do is think about your direct and deliver it as in a polite way as possible. And that actually, in, for me anyway, because sometimes I – You'd have to ask Wendy, but sometimes I have an edge in my voice because I'm human. Um, but but um, I, I think it would help me know that somebody else is going to have to translate this, so I might as well not try to get my anger through there. I'm going to have to be really precise in order to make sure that the direct gets it. Um, but look, more broadly for you, uh, the language issue needs to go away. I'm going to make an assumption that your use of English in your company is appropriate. Some companies say English is our language. Um, you know, we have friends at Daimler, and that's the language of the company, um, even though it's German. Um, that means you have to encourage your director to prove, improve his or her English skills. And so I would say start coaching him. And, yes, I'm cynical enough to believe that he may know English better than you think. Uh, or he may just be a great guy and really struggling, and that's fine. But darn it, help him. Um, Get him some classes, uh, start coaching him. Or, if English is not the language and there's an issue, you could improve your Japanese too. And it wouldn't hurt to do both. Um, Rosetta Stone is a no-brainer to teach people another language. It's not going to happen overnight, but it'll work. Okay. Next question. How can I develop more of an edge as a leader? Uh, th this is a, a, a tough question without meeting you uh, or, or without me having specific behavioral examples. And I know, by the way, as I'm talking, some of you are reading the details here. Um, and, and to be honest, this is, of course, why guidance from a boss like yours that is as generic as having an edge is dumb. Don't do this to anybody, folks. So I, I provide you with full caveats on any of these recommendations. If you're the person who asked this question and you get done with this list and you say, well, none of those are true for me, I'm okay with that. And all I would say is please forgive me that I don't know the details. I'm doing the best I can. If, if, if I suggested a bunch of things that you think you do, um, I, I'd be surprised if you think you do all of them. But if you think you do, then, again, just send me an email and give me more details. Be more specific. Tell me more about your situation. Start with the question up front, and I'll do my best to answer you directly. Um, here are some specific recommendations, very specific. Okay? Disagree with your boss. Okay? Be able to back it up, but stand up to your boss and say, I disagree. There are two ways to disagree with your boss. One is to say, I disagree, and the other is to say no. If, 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 if you're the person who asked this, and I suggest those two things, and you say to yourself immediately, I could not do those things, you might be screwed. Um, but that's okay. Um, start small. Dis number two, disagree with your peers in meetings. Probably a rare chance in your job because you're managing, you know, a region of banks, and and so um, you may not meet with your peers that often. But when your boss gets you all together to do strategy or discussions or whatever, um, disagree. Um, number three, interrupt your boss. People who interrupt their boss are seen as having an edge. Okay. Um, it's funny. Somebody says, well, I would never do that. I said, well, okay. Then just be happy that your boss is going to think you're a milk toast. 
you choose either one. Um, and it's not that bad. I mean, Mike and I can tell you, Mike, please echo me here that, that we get interrupted all the time and we just don't care. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. We don't, it doesn't, we don't think you've interrupted us. We just think you're impertinent and then we get over it. Cause if your idea is good, it's okay. We'll get over it. Yeah, the problem is folks who are, are concerned about interrupting because they don't want to be rude uh, is they never talk, yeah. right? And being silent, that, that's a problem. Yeah. If you want, if you want the yeah. edge, you have to have an opinion. You have to vocalize an opinion. Yeah, just because your board of directors, who are all independently wealthy at that point in their careers, drink, drink coffee and tea from fine china and have really good biscuits at their meetings, I assure you, they call each other idiots. And they interrupt. Okay. Now, 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 look, I'm not suggesting you become an ass. Don't be me. But push more. Number four, put forth your own ideas for growing the business rather than always waiting for your boss's ideas. And if your boss has an idea and you have an idea, fight for your idea. Be willing to lose, but be willing to fight for your idea. Number five, stop saying yes to everything, <laughs> which would be part of disagreeing and saying no. Sometimes I see bosses who get this feedback who, who, who say yes all the time. And then what they do is they say yes. I'm talking Now, in this case, I'm going to call you Brian, right? In this case, you're, you always say yes, and you think that's a good thing. And then, because you want to be too nice to delegate the responsibility to your ex, because you're the one that said yes, you take on the burden yourselves. And then you have to do the work yourself, and you end up working yourself to the bone, all because you don't want to say no to your boss, and you don't want to burden your directs. Folks, leaders do not do that. Leaders only say yes to their boss when they've considered the impact on their team and decided that impact is reasonable, and I'm not going to do it all myself. If you're not careful, you're creating people who don't know how to do your job, and then nobody's ready to get promoted, and you're nice, and you're unpromotable. And people confuse niceness as not being ready for the next level. It's also so protective of your directs that you end up not developing anyone. Okay. Um, start telling your boss the impact uh, of what he or she is asking and start delegating and or start delegating more. Another one, stop telling your boss how hard things are that he wants. Um, uh, don't, don't say, oh, my people may not like that. Here's an issue. What should I say to them? Blah, 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 blah. Either say yes or say no. And then get overruled sometimes. Stop, another one, stop telling your boss what your people are saying and always agreeing with your people. And so, relatedly, you're going to have to tell your people to suck it up every once in a while. And then my last two. First one is produce great results. And the next one is produce great results. Okay? You get great results, they won't care how nice you are. In fact, you produce great results, your boss will praise you as a warm, caring results generator. Actually, he won't. He'll praise you as a results generator who's also warm and caring. It's amazing. That's the answer to just about everything, guys. You will be in a lot less trouble. You can be a jerk if you produce great results. I would know. Okay, next question um, from Nadim. Um, and as it turns out, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give away something here. There's another question from, I think, the same person with a different name later on in the deck, the last question. Um, so you, you, you probably will like this answer. You won't like my last answer, but... Oh, well. Um, my answer to this question starts with, wow. Either this is a nod to how good they think you are, 
or they are totally clueless about things, and you just happen to be in the area with what they think is available time because you're not terribly busy. Knowing the deck, knowing what I know, though, I, I'm 99%. It's, they think you're good, and you don't realize it. So one option for you in this situation about the cost-benefit analysis recommending improvements is to say it's too early yet, okay? Though, frankly, the response to that statement, and, and by the way, that's not an impossibly impossible-to-do statement. You, you could do that. It, the response to it will largely depend upon your boss or the client here, their opinion of you, and the value of what the department is doing and what you're doing for them. If they think you're smart and they value the department, they'll wait. Otherwise, they may see it as you being afraid, which could, in fact, be an issue. Okay? Um, not necessarily untrue that you're afraid, but perhaps it's associated with some future risks that you're not willing to accept, and I would suggest you probably ought not to be willing to accept. Okay? I understand that, that you might think of that as a reasonable conclusion. I'm afraid I don't want to say it. I'm just going to say it's too early. But if you're going to choose to say it's too early, you better have good reasons beyond just you don't want to answer the question yet. Because if you don't have good reasons, they're going to think you're afraid. And early on in a relationship, that's not a good thing for your bosses, your handlers to be thinking. Basically, what they're asking is, is along the lines of, dude, do we have the right people here and the right structure or size and what would the cost and benefits be if either leaving it the way it is, because whenever you do a cost-benefit analysis, the status quo is always an option, or changing it in some way? I suspect they want you to do a cost-benefit analysis of a restructuring. Now, I just want to be clear. I'm going to pause here for a moment. When I say restructuring, a lot of people go, oh, that's bad. No, it's not. Restructuring happens all the time. Unfortunately, companies use euphemisms when they talk about layoffs and they say restructuring and restructuring has the taint of layoffs that's not what this is you just restructure it may, there may or may not be layoffs there may be more hiring okay i suspect they want you to do a a cost benefit analysis of a restructuring rather than two separate things an analysis and a, and a restructuring or people and so on so here's what you do okay let's see let, let's walk through um, what I would do if I were you if they had asked me for this cost-benefit analysis. The first thing you do is talk to the department's customers. Um, I assume these are internal departments, right? And I further am assuming that that's the asset financing folks. That probably means, based on what I know, uh, they're pretty lean, okay? They're servicing – look, folks, if you don't know what asset financing is, I'm not, I'm not going to – it up for you, but basically, they're servicing businesses that have to bother to borrow against their accounts receivable or other assets. Those generally are businesses that can't go into the standard capital markets. It usually means high risk um, or, or distressed in some fashion. It may that may not be true, and that may not even be relevant. But the, the reason I say that is because I suspect the people you're servicing are pretty lean. If they're going to make profit, um, it's because they've got a few people who are very very careful and they make. Um, the right loans in the right way. What you want to do is use our podcast called Jumpstarting Internal Customer Relationships. Find out what the needs are of the people you serve, the bankers. Okay? They may punt because, um, well, that doesn't translate. They may, they may not give you good answers because you're wondering about IT stuff and they couldn't care less. And knowing bankers, they don't. Okay, And that may be part of 
why your later question is what it is. But anyway, you may have to infer what IT resources will best serve them. Dude, that's why they ask you, because they kind of like you, and they think you might actually have good answers for them. You could be the first IT guy they send could do that for them. They've probably been wanting to do it for a couple of years, I'd be willing to bet. Bet you a pound, okay? Then, after you figure out what you think they want, and that means, where do you see us in a year or two, right? You know, how much more are we going to be doing? How much more interfacing are we going to do? With, are, is our customer base going to grow by 100% or by 10%? Are we just going to in, you know, go deeper with the customers we have? All with an eye toward what does that mean for the IT resources that are serving these bankers now? Okay? You've got to understand that because then what you do is a cost-benefit analysis, which is in a way is a variation of our decision brief guidance. So you need to listen to two casts already. Once you, listen, once you listen to that decision brief guidance that we've got, some of this is going to make more sense to you, but at a high level for everybody else listening as well, basically it's what are the possible ways to provide IT services and products, software and hardware and people, to our asset financing department. Generally, a cost-benefit analysis is done by establishing the possible options, deciding what measurements matter, determining the cost and benefits for each of the possible options that exist based on the measurements you've chosen, and then considering the timeline that it would take to make any of the changes. Now, when I say cost, costs are dollars here, whereas benefits are probably not dollars to you. You're going to say the benefits are will be more responsive or something. But don't worry about that to some degree. Um, your bankers will probably roll their eyes a little bit, but they will be quick to monetize whatever benefits you tell them in their heads. That's what they do. They monetize stuff. Uh, and you're probably okay there. Okay? One of the options has to be status quo. You'll have to evaluate effectiveness, right? It would, and by, again, when I say effectiveness of any of the given options, it has to be against what you've discovered are the stated needs of the customer analysis I mentioned, and then cost. Right? And costs usually are people and the budget the department has for whatever it gets and however products it provides are budgeted for. Look, sometimes IT gives stuff to internal departments and IT has a huge budget for stuff. And sometimes IT has no budget for stuff. The line departments spend directly for it based on IT input. I don't know how your bank is structured. Usually, bankers want more budget, so they have the budget. Okay? But you need to tell them what it's going to cost their budget to do what you recommend. Now, let me be clear. That may be something completely different, and they don't mind. You're probably saying, oh, there's probably somebody that would be saying, I can't, you know, gee, I couldn't recommend the total destruction of this department. You could. You have to be careful, though. Who is it on the technical side of the bank that you have to keep happy? And you better not walk into a bunch of bankers when, in fact, there's a technical person who oversees your work uh, in the bank and you better not walk into the bankers without that technical person saying, dude, you can't, you know, I agree, or it'll be okay. So you've got you've to pre-wire this as well, okay? Uh, if you don't know what pre-wire is, there's, there's a cast for that, okay? Another option for you, one, of course, is, is, is status quo. Another one is outsourcing completely. And so you ask yourself, what are the costs and benefits of that? And there could be a hybrid model in between the two. And by the way, I'm not suggesting it's either or or a hybrid. It could be just restructure the people you already have, let these two people go, and bring in two more Java guys because you guys do a lot of Java, and these people who are doing Java here don't know squat. That could happen, right? 
But there could be a hybrid model of internal and external, which, frankly, if you think about it, you're a small example of, if I understand it correctly, you're an outsider, but there is an internal department of, of resources. I suspect the heart of this matter is, A, they're not happy with the support they're getting from the present structure or the agreement, whatever, however many people are internal or external resources, who, get, who pays whom, right? And B, they don't know enough about the hardware and software and processes of IT to know what to do about it. Include in your analyses what has to change process-wise. How do they want to serve customers? What do they want to do with the business? And then from that, infer, well, that would mean you need this and you don't have it. Or, hey, you already actually have that. You've just got too many. Or they have crappy attitudes, and I'm going to make some recommendations about actual people. You're getting into touchy area here there because there's, there's a situation where You've got, to, you've got to keep HR and the technical people in the bank happy as well. And they may have chosen you because you're an outsider because you'll give them all this stuff without concern for politics, which bankers usually don't care about as long as they have, a, they have big enough egos to say, I can, I can make the finance and HR people do what I want. Yeah, they probably can. And the finance and HR person, the, 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 the technical and finance and HR people will fire you in the process. Um, so, so um some of the stuff, um, if you change hardware, what does that mean for the kind of personnel assets you'd have to have to support that stuff versus what the bank has now? And if you go with something more agile, let's say, as an approach, can the people there now do that or not? And what would it take to get them there? Might not hurt for you to know what are other asset financing IT support groups doing. If you're an external resource, ask the people at your company, the company that employs you, in terms of, hey, we service other banks, what, who do we have at asset financing and what are the other banks' asset finance IT support functions structured like? Uh, and, by the way, there may be more business here for your firm, so the biz development guys can probably help you. And, by the way, I hate saying business development. That, that phrase, by the way, folks, came up because people don't like saying sales. But the fact is that's what they are. Oh, I'm in biz dev. Really? Is that a new age thing for sales? Because let me tell you, the guys we promote are the biggest salespeople, not the biggest big biz dev guys. All right. If you really want to impress the bankers, include at the end, after the analysis and the, potentially the recommendation, hopefully you'll have a recommendation. Remember that having a recommendation is in our decision brief test. Do a sensitivity analysis addressing what the impacts might be of any potential big changes to the underlying assumptions or the business model. This will make them think you're a genius, frankly, and it will quadrant their concerns about risks. And some of those risks ought to be internal stuff as well. When you're done with it, if you want Mike and me to look at it, we will. But, dude, don't send it to us at the last minute because we might say, OMG, no, because you've never done this before. And that would totally bum you out right before a big presentation. And this, this question makes me think, we need to do a cast on cost-benefit analysis, huh, Mike? <laughs> I, I, I always had it in my head as being a part of decision brief, but it, but it's, it is a specialized form of decision brief. Hope that was help, hope that was helpful. It's great fun to answer that one. Next question: How do I supervise somebody? How, how do I do one on ones and so on with somebody who is a truck driver that I don't see? Well, the answer is call them on the phone. Um, I know managers at trucking companies who do one on ones with drivers who call them when they're driving. And frankly, somebody said, well, I don't want to interrupt them when they're driving. Are you kidding me? These truckers watch DVDs when they're driving. And it's not in a heads-up display projected on their windscreen either. Um, and frankly, if they're not doing that, they're listening to the radio. Um, 
lot of them listen to Rush Limbaugh, and they're on the CB. Um, uh, I, I don't know why more driver managers don't ride along periodically. In my opinion, the budget will be worth it. Uh, the company would probably say no. And by the way, I don't. You know, if you're managing drivers, I don't know if you're a dispatcher. I don't know if it's if it's big rigs or not. Um, sometimes companies have changed the name driver manager to change the name of dispatcher to driver manager. And there are a lot of truckers out there who don't think their dispatcher is their manager. Um, it is a very independent group. But it would depend on whether you're long-haul truckers or whether they're just driving trucks that are delivering stuff, furniture, out of, and they come back to the store every day. That's different. All of those are different. But here are the kind of questions I'd be asking them. Um, things like, at your last pickup, any customer comments, anything to, to share? You know, I, I'll never forget, I was on the loading dock, and a, a trucker was there loading something. And the, the, the guy who was the foreman of the loading crew um, for this fairly high-tech company said, you guys are going to be get busy next month. we got a big shipment going out to Asia. And so, and the driver ended up being, having a cup of coffee or whatever, and I walked by and said, hey, good news about your business. And he, he says, what? I said, the, 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 you guys are going to be busy. He says, yeah, was he talking to me? What was he talking about? And the driver said, I just do what the dispatcher tells me. I just do, you know, I'm just a driver. I just, you know, they tell me what to do, and I go do it, and I'm just driving. There are some people who just love being unburdened. They just want to be on the road, and it's a great job for them. But that guy didn't even dream that he would go back to his boss and say, dude, somebody needs to be talking to them because I think, I don't know what our structure is. I don't know what our plan is, but you don't, you're not telling me I'm going to be busier next month. Um, and you don't know whether or not the right people are talking. So, uh, so last pickup, customer comments. Were you timely? Right? What, what, what was your schedule? Uh, GPS certainly helps with that, of course. But it doesn't hurt to ask. Um, the ride you're on, right? How's your safety? How's your rig doing? Any issues with equipment? Anything we need to be specially checking on when you get back to the to the um, to the lot? Your physical condition, your schedule, how you feeling? When did you sleep last? Um, now there are people who will tell you, "Oh, drivers don't want to be asked that." No, they don't. In many cases, however, they love it secretly, and then they bitch to their buddies about how my boss wants to know all this stuff until the shit hits the fan. And then they want somebody who knows what the hell's going on. You know, is your family okay? Are you communicating with your family? Um, now, regarding the, radio, the rest of your question, it's hard for me to know about the kind of developmental feedback you'd want to give them without knowing what habits you're talking about. But look, if they do something they, you want them to stop, give them feedback, negative feedback. Try not to have them learn the feedback model by you starting with negative feedback. Um, uh, and so start doing the one-on-ones. And look, if they did something a year ago and you want to give them feedback about it, don't, okay? If you don't know that they've done it since then, then don't ask or don't share. If there are things, if there's data you get off the GPS that is justified in your mind to give them negative feedback, give it to them. Hey, when you're 12 minutes late for a customer pickup that they only have a, that, that doesn't look well. Can you do that better next time? Um, that's normal. And just so you know about managing employees who you don't have direct physical supervision, let's not forget I see Wendy twice a year. She and I have a great relationship, and I give her feedback over the phone. It works fine. It always has. So I've been there. Over half of the one-on-ones I've done in my life have been over the phone. So it works. All right. Next question. 
vice president's repeated suggestions I couldn't, shouldn't spend time on one-on-ones. Look, it depends. I suppose it would depend on your results and your guts and your VP. If your VP has serious ADD issues, you know, executive attention deficit disorder, and you don't respect him, and he says something but then forgets about it and doesn't follow up, if it were me, I'd ignore it. Now, look, I'd be smart. I'd be politically savvy. I'd probably start calling them. I'd probably stop calling them, even change the name of it on my calendar. I'd stop calling them one-on-ones. Call them status meetings if you want. Who cares? Um, um, Rose is still Rose by any other name. Um, if I decided I was going to put my one-on-ones to my directs, right, your boss suggested that, dude, I would just stop doing them. Otherwise, trust me, you are just transferring the risk of this one-on-one meeting to your directs. The ones that chose to opt out would be fine. The ones who chose to stay in would then be asked by their boss, who seems to think they don't need it because we have seasoned people here, Jesus. Um, They would be asked why they need it, since their boss's boss didn't think they did. Man, that would scare the crap out of me if I were your direct. And I would feel like you threw me out of the bus. Look, if it were me, and look, I know, you're not me, I'd say, hey, thanks, boss, and I'd just keep doing them. Now, if he said to you, I'm demanding you stop these stupid one-on-ones, I probably would say, I want to make a case. I want a chance to make a case. Okay. Um, and then if at, at the end of my case, which, by the way, would include my direct saying, this is pretty good, I like this. And by the way, here were results before and here were results after. My results are better, um, regardless of what kind of people we have. Um, then, then I think hopefully your boss would relent. If your boss wouldn't relent, and if he, he or she tells you again, you will stop them, okay, you got to stop them. And then if it were me, I'd look for another job. Uh, but look, here's the answer. I've said it before. Results. If you produce results, your boss won't push too hard. Now, if you start weakening, he's going to blame the one-on-ones. And, and just so you know, look, I've dealt with people like this a bunch of times. Um, you should do what you think is best. It's completely reasonable for you to consider the risk to your job of pushing back too hard. So if you don't want to push back that hard, you'll get my full support on that. And I can fully support you feeling that you're scared to death and your VP is going to fire you, depending upon what your results are. And I can also hold in my head the thought that your VP is an idiot if he thinks 30 minutes of FaceTime a week is supervision. Supervision entails watching people work. Unless your guys work 30 minutes a week, you're not supervising them. I know CEOs who could probably run circles around your VP in their sleep who do one-on-ones with their EVP directs running $300 million divisions, and I can assure you that no one I know is better than those guys are. So, good question, though. Um, okay, Robert wants to know about how do you choose what strategic priorities? Wow, a small question. If I knew a fail-safe way to tell everyone how to do that, I'd be a billionaire. Um, for every industry, for every level, for every division, the big factors that affect the decision about which of the right strategic priorities are different. If you want to post in the forums or send me an email with the kind of details for your situation, let me know it's there, whatever. I'll answer along with a bunch of our community. It's actually better to put it in the forums and then send me an email with a link to that forum post because that way other people will will, um, be able to chime in. Although, just be aware that if somebody starts their thing with, I've never done that before, but you should just skip that post right there. Okay. 
I'm always amazed by that. I've never done it, but I think you should do X. Hmm. Okay. You should also know that every time you hear of an executive getting fired, it's because their decisions on these issues were judged not effective, usually by the marketplace, though often by their bosses. And part of the reason, frankly, for that is because they didn't learn how to do it when they were a manager about making the choice. Should I've got five ideas. Which one do we think we should do? I'm going to pick A because of this. Okay. Let's see what happens. And you're going to be wrong sometimes. It's far better to learn how to make choices that may not be strategic to the business but are strategic to you as a manager when you're a manager and pay attention to what works and what doesn't work. Sometimes great ideas that could have been fabulously successful are executed poorly. And we believe that happens a lot more than people realize. And then they judge, unfortunately, the idea to be wrong. Um, and then sometimes the idea is bad and you execute flawlessly and it doesn't matter. It's not going to work. But you need to do that when you're a manager. That's why I think when I hear about companies that say, well, only VPs have budgets here, I say, well, man, that's too bad because when your VPs get those budgets, they're really big and they don't know what the hell they're doing. Um, but some general rules I can share about strategic type stuff. Look, the simple answer in for-profit companies is profit maximization. That either means more revenue or it means less cost. If you're in a support role, figure out which of the options you can provide the best support at for at the lowest cost. If you're in a revenue role, make choices that you will bring in the largest top line. Make choices that you believe will bring in the largest top line. The best way to start doing that is to have several options, usually formed from your own experience and discussion with your team and with your peers. Okay? Then prepare for what amounts to be to, to, to a decision brief. There's a cast for that. And, and by the way, led to by a cost-benefit analysis. Right? This is what executives do. When, it, when an executive says, I need a cost-benefit cost analysis of this, she's using that to go to her boss and say, I recommend X, and here's my CBA to go with it. But she doesn't do the CBA. She assigns it to you so that you have done it 20 times, and then when you ask one of your directs, when you're a VP or an SVP or an EVP to do it, you will know how to evaluate them being done. I'm always worried when uh, some young person is a VP at a 100-person company, and they're doing a cost-benefit analysis for the first time on a $5 million choice in a $20 million company. Bad idea. Okay? Um, one of the curses of being a human, the, the great benefit of being a human is you can do almost anything. The curse is the first time you do it, you suck at it. Um, so you have several options. You get ready for a decision brief. Include the various levels of effort and risk to you and to your team in your analysis. Do it regularly. Look, you could do this quarterly with your team and teach them the kind of thinking you want them to have about the choices we make on a regular basis. And you just start doing it regularly. You'll be able to do it without even running the numbers. There's a general rule among executives that decisions that cost less than seven figures don't need a formal cost-benefit analysis and a decision brief, but that's only because they've done hundreds of them, and what they know is moved from their head to their gut. For you, it's lots of written-down cost-benefit analyses followed by decision briefs. Now, earlier I said, uh, you know, you've you got to uh, believe, right? You, you, um, the external, I mean, look, the job of an executive is to sense the external world, to sense the inherent uncertainty of the outside world, and turn that uncertainty into a certainty in the forms of plans and programs for the managers and workers of a firm to act upon. But don't mistake that when an executive says, the market is going to do this, and so we're going to do X, they're making an educated decision about the market. They don't know shit. Nobody does. The future is 
totally unknown. Okay? The guys who are good at predicting the future are right half the time. They trumpet all their rightness, but they keep very quiet about their wrongness. And even if they did know what was going to happen, their statement about what actions the firm is going to take in order, based on that certainty they have, would still be a belief in what will work for that market, not a certainty. This is why a lot of managers claim to want to be an executive. And then when they get to be an executive, go, oh, my God, I've got to make decisions, and the only thing I have going for me is me. Some managers then choose to just bet on themselves. Other executives then say, oh, I just need to do a billion more uh, calculations, and then I'll have the right answer. There are no calculations in the world that will allow you to predict the future. Might as well just wet your finger and hold it up in the air. So, so it's still just a belief. There's no magic bullet for this stuff. That's what makes the core job of an executive hard. If you're not an executive, the smaller choices you're making now are supposed to be helping you hone your skills at sensing the market, analyzing the cost, analyzing the benefits of various choices, and then socializing your choice, because you're going to have to do probably a pre-wire to get other people along the board to do their part to execute it. By the way, folks, I just got a note that I have 15 minutes. I'm going past an hour. If you can't stay, I apologize, but these are good questions. I, I, I think I'm on nine, I think I, or I'm on question eight. I think I'm about halfway through. Um, okay, next question. Female direct report with polish issues. Okay, sure. I think this is awesome, by the way. I was just at a conference in Austin the other day, and we had a, we had a female executive asking about gender issues. It, it is What I'm about to recommend is a little bit politically dicey, but it's absolutely the right thing to do. If you believe this person has potential, which we'll talk about later um, in another, another question, I think it's bloody brilliant to do it. Look, for the grammar, it's not hard. It's just feedback. It's lots and lots and lots of feedback, and perhaps even coaching. And, and look, there are a lot – now, this is, this is politically sensitive. There are people who would tell you, oh, you can't do that. I think they're wrong. And I think far too many things are way too politically correct these days. Frankly, look in the eyes of your direct. See her. Show her appreciation that you are willing to work hard because she has skills. But – you know what? Unfortunately, the school system where she was or where she was raised or whatever didn't give her the kinds of things that other people take for granted. So what? Right? Let's capture her energy and her ability. Um, there are lots of courses you can encourage her to attend. If she's smart, she'll get over her surprise that they're often built for foreign-born people who are learning English as a second language. It's actually English as a second language for professionals is really what, what these courses are. And they work. Okay. If you can't do that, you can't spend or she can't spend or whatever, it's tons of feedback and coaching. Every meeting you go to that she's in and she says she don't or I seen, you correct her on it afterwards. Okay? No. If you're not doing one-on-ones, you better start with one-on-ones and you better start giving her positive feedback too. And I'll tell you what, if all you do is see the negatives and not the positives, that can be that can be disconcerting for someone. They'll feel beaten down by that, and you don't want that. So when she says she doesn't, or I have seen, or I saw, you got to note that too. The problem is it'll be hard for you to see it because it won't stand out, probably, because you're used to it. It's normal, and managers aren't really good at seeing normal as being distinctive. So you'll have to work on that. Um, and then, look, you and her read Dress for Success, John Malloy's book. There's a John, there's a Dress for Success for Women. It's not perfect. It's, it's, I don't know, I think it's the latest one is five, six, it's 10, 15, it's 15 years old. It's still damn good. Also, there's a book called Land's End, Business Attire for Women that I really like. 
Um, and it's, it's, a, it's probably a 30 or 40% change. Now, I'm going to say something that will get me in trouble. And this is me, and you don't have to do it. But if it were me, I'd give her money to buy them. Um, you underestimate. You underestimate. You underestimate when you're trying so hard to be a helpful boss that she sees it as you better go buy better clothes. And she may not have the money. Um, so be sensitive to that. And if you need 100 bucks, write me a note. I'll send you 100 bucks. Okay. Next. Oh, here's a good one. What's the status of my book? It's just quite fine. Next question. No. Thank you for asking. Um, it is written. It's been written for a couple of years now. The plan, our plan is to publish it in Q1 of 2012. I think that's right, Mike, right? Not Q2? Maybe Q2. Q1. Uh, Q1. Oh, lucky me. We had originally intended to have it, yeah, we had originally intended folks to have it published externally, but have had nothing but bad experiences with that. Um, just awful. Um, so the plan right now is to self-publish. We'll probably offer it on the website at one price and on Amazon at another price, 30% higher, since Amazon wants 30% of the money. Really? Um, We'd like, though, the exposure that Amazon brings to people who literally haven't a clue about us or about podcasts or anything. We believe that's a distribution channel we need to do better in. Um, if, you, if you look, you'll see that our interview, our interview series is available on CD there. Um, and we also believe, that we know this now from talking to enough people, that if we do get enough self-publishing success, that could lead to different conversations with the publishing houses. Basically, the reason I don't like the publishing houses is they wanted all the money. Sorry, no, this is my work, and I'm delivering it directly to managers whom I care about. And I know secretly they don't know much about managers, and they don't really care about you. What they want is the money from the book. Um, and that third-party system bugs me. I, I could have just given up, but I didn't. Um, and so what we know is if you publish enough, and, and I, I would assume, I could be wrong, that we could sell 20,000 copies of the book to the website. If we do that... I assure you, the publishing house will be interesting in helping us publish it to a wider audience. And and uh, you, this is probably inside baseball and too much information, but if you're wondering, all the proceeds from the book will go to manager tools and not to me alone. Usually the writer, the author gets it, but I've written it, and I'll write more books, by the way, um, although we're pretty busy here. <laughs> uh, the fact is, good writing is hard, and if you like the shows, it's because, in part, I work really hard at writing the tightest show I can. I know I'm long-winded. I apologize for that. Um, but the fact is our success at, at Manager Tools and therefore where the book will be is due to four people, not me, not me and Mike. It's due to me and Mike and Maggie and Wendy um, and you guys too. Um, so we'll keep you posted. And since I've already said it out loud a bunch of times, we'll figure out how to get you autographed copies too if you want them. Um, Weird, but okay. Um, next question. Thankfully, um, how would you recommend handling this? I talked with another person, and they agree with me to do this or that. Okay, this is a simple two by two matrix, folks. It's his or her credibility versus your convictions. If you believe in what you're doing, and you question her motives, ignore her. Hey, thanks for that. Awesome. Two thumbs up. Well done. Okay. If you believe in what you're doing, but now you think he or she is a well-intentioned professional, 
ask for more information, consider the input, and rethink, and then do what you think is best. Also, in that case, start strengthening the efforts you make to get other people's points of view into your plans and processes, either by strengthening your network or your planning process steps, which will start to include now external input, similar to our guidance on pre-wires. That's two parts of the four-part matrix. The other side is, if you're not tied to the idea and you think her motives are questionable, again, ignore her, but add some risk to the possible outcomes you're going to get. And, by the way, <laughs> go back and consider getting more input if you're not tied to the idea. And if you're not convinced about your idea, it's something you're thinking about, but you're not falling on your sword about it, but she is well-intentioned, well, then hold off on what you're doing and gather more data, including asking other people about um, And one, one other point, this analysis I'm sharing with you only applies to things that are relevant to what this person and others have legitimate interest in. If she's telling you how to manage her team, ignore her with a passion, do what you think is best. And if it were me, I'd tell her to go pound sand. And by the way, you've got more problems in your team than I do in mine. Um, so the idea that – I had this happen to me once. One of my peers is saying I shouldn't do what I want. She went and talked to my boss, and the boss doesn't like the idea. Boy, suddenly it's, it's, it's fratricide time. I'm going to kill my peer. What are you doing? You're watching me. You're not doing it. You're going and ratting on me to the boss, and then you're bringing back the boss's crap to me. I hate you. You should die. <laughs> so um, I'm sorry. I'm kidding. Um, uh, you know, it depends on what they're giving you input about. If it's something at your level that's at their level, fine. But if it's something about you managing your team, say, hey, thanks. And then if you're not me, Privately, as you walk away, say, pound sand underneath your, uh, your voice. Okay. Next question. What is my take on Daniel Pink's book? Uh, pretty good, darn it. I like that book. I like a lot of his stuff on motivation. I thought it was, I thought it was well delivered. I, I, I agreed with a lot of it. I didn't agree with some of it, but I found it uh, good. Uh, I think he's a little too out there sometimes, but not in this book. Um, for those of you who haven't read it, don't put too much stock about the book in this shortened version of the question. Money is not the only part of the book by any stretch. It's a much broader approach to the idea of drive, meaning motivation, okay? not driving as in a car. But, but look, money does matter, but not as much as some people say. That's important. Among professionals who think about these kinds of issues, the human behavior and organizations issues, money is called a hygiene issue. You have to have it but more of it isn't always necessarily better, okay? Part of the problem with money is that lots of it or lots of its absence creates either envy or sympathy, and so the press reports on how money affects either end of the spectrum. But really, it's the middle of the market, saying the talent market, the place where we exchange skills for income to feed our families. Um, it's the middle of the market that matters because it's the big part. But it's too diffuse a subject with too many other factors involved to draw clear distinctions about only one of the motivators, money. And so what ends up happening is they do controlled tests, which really purport to suggest something about money that may not be true. And then, again, the, the press reporting upon poor people and reporting on rich people, which they always seem to describe as greedy, um, it, it's not – I don't think it's terribly helpful. Um, look, the guy who makes $5,000 less 
that is CubeMate and does similar work and never, ever minds about the money and never leaves, well, maybe he's got a Louis Ranieri story about how the company took care of him. Or maybe he believes in Dickens' macabre principle, right? You guys know that. I'm sure I've said it before. Uh, Mr. Macabre is a is a character from Dickens. Dickens is good, by the way. You should read him. And the quote from Macabre, who goes on to be quite successful later on in the book, once he discovers his boss is a really bad person. Um, Mr. Macabre said, "Annual income twenty pounds, annual expenditure nineteen pounds nineteen and six, result happiness." Annual income, 20 pounds. Annual expenditure, 20 pounds. Often six. Result, misery. So to draw the conclusion that more money is better from him is impossible. But that's not to say Mr. Mercado wouldn't want more. And look, don't forget the Roy Hobbs principle. You know, Roy Hobbs is the movie The Natural. You want to pay me more, that's up to you. Um, and I think the entire thing about money is, is, is skewed by the fact that some people are enlightened enough to realize, yeah, I've got to pay my bills, and that's important. And I also have to put my head on my pillow at night. And there's something that I coined the phrase years ago, psychic income. How do I feel about what I'm doing? And there are too many young people, I think. And today makes it even worse with the absence of money at the lower end of the spectrum that I need money. And, and if, you, if you don't think more broadly than that, you can end up, over the course of five or ten years of your career, thinking money is a report card. And, folks, it's not. Your kids are your report card. That's for another another time, though. All right, next question. This is a great one. Okay. You guys got to – I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you ten seconds to read this question. Okay. The answer to that question is you don't. Okay. That's like – how do I hold the entire universe in the palm of my hand? Just quick check. No, you can't do that. Okay. First of all, folks, we don't ever recommend being completely candid, even close to being completely candid. Or heck, no way near candid when you leave a company because of frustrations or difficulties with your boss. Folks, you cannot have what you want here, both justice and peace. It doesn't work. You're dealing with power, and those things just aren't commensurate with power in this case. If you want a good final assessment and a recommendation, shut the hell up. If you want those two things as well as a chance for the organization to know why you're leaving, you're smoking crack. It's never going to happen. Don't try it. Stay quiet. Get the good review. Trust that sooner or later the law of large numbers will bring that boss to heel. And if, you're, and if you haven't matured anymore, you'll laugh at him. If you've matured, you'll try to help him. But don't be the heroic martyr, least of all in economic times like these. Don't do it. Okay, that was easy. Oh, the geographical question. Okay, do geographical locations influence the ease of implementing your guidelines? No, they don't. And by the way, I don't think of our guidance as being particularly American. I was in the forums this morning, and somebody was somebody asked a similar question to this this morning, and or recently in the forums, and and I said, you know, it's funny. I nobody taught me in America how to handle, handle business cards until I learned it from the Japanese, and now I teach the Japanese way. Americans are leading the way in casual dress at work, much to my dismay. Um, I do think more casual can be okay, but professional matters too. And so I teach more a European way in some cases of how to be professional at work in terms of your attire, um, although not British shirts, too tight. Um, um, you know, look, 
I don't think of our guidance as being particularly American because a lot of my consulting work was done overseas and with foreign nationals here in the U.S. And when I think of something as being particularly American, the question I have is, is it in fact effective all over the world? I do believe in 100 years the standard way of managing will not be culturally influenced. And frankly, it's not very much culturally influenced now. Um, it's not because American is better. It's because only people want to know what works, what's effective. Um, we don't pay much attention. I, I may be reading your question wrong, but we don't pay much attention to an organization's support of an individual manager. It boils down to how individuals respond to the manager. And, and to be clear, we don't think people are different anywhere in the world, okay, other than most of us, frankly, who if you're listening to this call, you take for granted the riches you live with every day until the poverty that other people live in is put in your face, particularly those people in repressive or brutal dictatorships. Um, but look, people aren't different. There's a cast about people all over the world being the same, and the cast is called the Windy Curve. It's a good one. It's named after Windy, who writes our Curitals cast. I promise you, what you think of as the difference between Germans and Americans is false. Someone told you Americans are X. You met some Americans, and you looked for X, and you found it, and you proved something that was false. Americans and Germans are no different. Not. Okay? There are just as many cowboys per capita in Germany as there are in America. Now, what happens is, I remember talking to a German about this, he says, no, that's not true, Mark. The number of, quote, cowboys, and I think I know what you mean, sir, um, in German, there's less of them in Germany. I said, yes, because there are 300 million Americans, and there aren't that many Germans. There are more cowboys in China than there are in America. But percentage-wise, it's just the same. Uh, by the way, I really do think Zuckerberg was wrong about there are more Chinese geniuses than there are Americans meaning there are more Chinese geniuses than there are all Americans. That that would mean that 25% of all Chinese are geniuses. I just don't buy it because I only know like five geniuses. Um, so, frankly, when I get this question a lot of times, it's from a manager, no offense, who's citing his own experience and often at only one company. I mentioned Germans. We've had lots of Germans, for instance, tell us that this would not work at a German firm. Oh, my God, this your American thing. It won't work at German firms. But, folks, we've trained hundreds of German managers and French managers on years ago, and they're still using it. And what's funny, it's the, guy, the guy says, well, the reason this won't work is it's really it's, this would not be good for engineers and technical people. <laughs> Which, and the people we trained were, like, way technical and engineers. And our audience worldwide skews technical in part because some people think podcasts are like magic and they can't figure out what an RSS feed is. So, No. No geographical location influenced the ease of implementing this stuff. Now, it's much, you know, it, 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 I often say when people, when I'm, when I'm playing golf, uh, you, you, when, you, when you're on the green, you putt, and the club you putt with is called a putter. But if you think about it, the person could also be called the putter. The guy who's putting is the putter. And so I often joke, I say, it's never the putter while pointing at the tool I use. It's always the putter pointing at myself. It always boils down to the manager. Any manager in America could suck at this stuff, and any German or French or Chinese or Uzbekistani manager could be great at it. It's not because of where you are. It's because of who you are. Okay. Do we um, Publishing the podcast in the form of a handbook. It, it's not likely anytime soon, but we have talked about this. We know, that, as Mike alluded to earlier, that podcasts don't reach everybody. 
That said, we could argue the case that we already do publish the podcast as handbooks one at a time, and every one of you individual licensees has the handbook. We're also probably going to add the ability to license individual casts at some point. There is some technical infrastructure we need that is necessary first before we do that. Uh, and as well, there will be books too, more than one. Although, interestingly enough, Wendy did ask me, I think this morning by email, what about combining several together? Um, yeah, we'll probably do that. Um, that said, th these kinds of questions cause me to just take a, a step up and say, generally regarding all the new stuff that we could do, um, I, I think this one is probably in our future, but but I mean, but but not likely in the short term. Um, uh, folks, we're doing this small company thing differently than probably a lot of folks might want us to. We have access to venture capitalists, but we're not really all that interested. Basically, what that would be about is monetizing our futures. But frankly, we would lose control of the vision. And we believe, rightly or wrongly, the vision is what matters. I would rather go broke doing this than make money doing it for somebody else. Um, we're out. Our mission is to make every manager effective and every professional productive. We frankly agree with Steve Jobs that there are a lot of young people who think that entrepreneurship means starting a company in order to get a valuation. Look, the macabre principle, right, and Roy Hobbs, too. You know, okay, we wish we were Hobbs. But look, we're going to go slower. It's going to go less, less slow than you want. Um, we'd love to keep you happy and keep track of our vision. We do not want to be unhappy with what we're doing because the stuff we're doing now is really important. And when we die, there will still be manager tools in some fashion. So we're going to be slower than you want. We'd ra frankly, we'd rather be Procter & Gamble or GE, or I know people don't realize this, or we would even want to be Apple. They built their companies before venture capitalists came along and before the venture capitalist accelerant of cash mattered. And if you look at the beginning track record of Procter or GE or Apple, it's pretty flat. Even Microsoft, I think, came along before VCs were a big deal. Um, DOS happened long, MS-DOS happened long before Microsoft was really somebody. Um, so um, I do think more written material is in our future. It's not going to happen in the short term. But once we get the ability to put individual casts out there, and people can buy one for, say, 9 bucks and download the show notes rather than having to listen to my ugly voice, you know, um, there's probably going to be more stuff like that. I think we've got, what, just two more? Yeah. All right. Is it rude or professional for physical address? No, it's not. It's absolutely not. You would simply say, may I have your business card? I'd like to send you a thank you note. Um, it, it's, to it's not rude of you to ask. It's totally rude of the other person to decline. It's just a slap in your face. Try not to judge them. Okay? Be better than me. Um, of course, in their mind, they want to avoid contact with you. And, and there's a chance, one out of 50, that the person who gets their card is going to be like, I have his card. I'm his friend. He wants to hear from me. I'm going to text him and Twitter him, and ooh, I'm going to put up a page to his shrine to him, hoping he gives me a job. Um, look, they want to avoid contact with you if, if they say no to you, but this, of course, implies that they couldn't avoid you if you had their contact information, which, of course, is false. They can just ignore your calls and your emails. right? They just don't like the guilt they feel. But look, it does happen. Um, others have asked this question before of them. And it's because they've been denied a card with some gruff response, which is rude. People, 
you know, gee, I, I feel bad. I, I asked a question, and some executive said no to me, and I felt like I'd done the wrong thing. No, you didn't do anything wrong. The guy who said no to you and was rude about it or was gruff about it, he was rude. And he's using his power to make you feel small. It's stupid. Okay? If they don't agree, though, that's okay. Just write down the address of the building they work in as you walk out of the building. Okay? You can get that. You can take a picture of one of the magazines in the lobby, the front cover of the magazine in the lobby that has the address of the company on it. Okay? You can ask the receptionist for the company if, it's on the, if she's on the 20th or he's on the 20th floor. You can Google the address. You can walk out and talk to the security guard who doesn't work for that company. What's the address of this building? Or you can infer that person's address who told you no when someone else whom you did interview with does give you their card because that person's not an ass. And, in fact, they have the same address or something like that. So, no, it's not rude. It's polite, in fact. It's, it's a reasonable accommodation to allow you to do the polite thing and to send a thank you note. Okay, last question. Um, I remember you. I <laughs> saw you're struggling. Um, this is a great question to end on. Some of you won't agree, but I like it. My suggestion to you would be to get the hell over your self-doubts. I've managed someone before whom I thought was brilliant and who themselves felt inadequate every day. And when I got infuriated with him, it was his self-doubts that killed his performance, and it was obvious. I promise you, you have no idea the extent to which your own emotional state is killing your ability to do your very best. If you don't do well, I'd be willing to bet you $1,000 right now. It is this thought and emotion you're having that is the problem that leads to the results you don't get. Um, I'm sure I've shared this before, but nevertheless, there are signs in the tube in London that say mind the gap. I'm not going to go into why, but if you, Wikipedia, if you Wikipedia mind the gap, it'll tell you. I've always seen that mind the gap as what managers should do. In fact, I have a mind the gap um, magnet on my desk. Um, it's a cool sign. Okay? Um, that's what managers should do. Mind the gap between what your team members are doing now and what they are capable of doing at their best, and it is your job to make that gap small. If all of us were being made as good as we could be, I know this sounds corny, but there would be no hunger. There would be no famine. There would be no poverty. I hate to sound like John Lennon, but try to imagine it. For you, this means that your boss thinks you're doing better than you are. In fact, you say you've gotten some positive feedback. Who are you to argue with me, sir? Me telling you you're doing well is perhaps all you're going to get. I'm not going to bring you any muffin with warm jam to soothe your tired soul. Okay? Are your basic needs being met as food, far as food, clothing, and shelter? I think they are. If a bank with an asset financing desk is asking you to do a CBA, I know they are. I wouldn't ask a numpty to do that for me, trust me. Do you realize that nearly 7 billion human souls would fight for your life? You're doing fine. You're probably doing well. Stop sabotaging yourself and get to effing work. Work your ass off and tell that nasty little voice in your head it's effing wrong. And if you don't believe it, I'll tell it it's wrong. And tell it you intend to do your best. It's hard enough to deal with others who question us. Let's not encourage our detractors with voices in our own heads. Lincoln may not have been Disraeli, but then Disraeli wasn't Lincoln either, frankly. Lincoln said when asked how he handled all the criticism he got, he said, if I were to try to read, much less answer all the attacks made on me, this shop might as well be closed for any of the business. I do the very best I know how, the very best I can, and I mean to keep doing so until the end. If the end brings me out all right, what's said against me won't amount to nothing. 
If the inn brings me out wrong, ten angels swearing I'm right will make no difference. Sir, be bold, and mighty forces will come to your aid. Boldness starts in your heart, telling your head to shut the F up and get to work. That's the last question. Oh, one more thing. Mia, I think you're listening. I owe you an email. I've rethought my answer to your question about the interview creation tool, and you and I need to talk for a few minutes so I can understand better about your job. It was a great question you asked, and I think my answer was not as good as it could have been. And I know it's been a while, but I look forward to talking to you again. Thanks all for being with us. Mike, do I need to turn this back over to you or to Maggie, or are we done? Mike's not there. Um, well, all thank you all for being with us. What we do, we do for you. It is the greatest thing I've ever done in my life professionally, and I like doing it so much. I was up till 2 last night, and I'll probably up till 2 again tonight. Um, everyone take care. Do your best. Take care of someone else. Take care of your families first. And if I don't talk to you in the next couple of months, for those of you who will be celebrating it, enjoy your holiday season. Thanks. Goodbye.